0: Hi there, it's Neil Stephen, CEO of This Is Marketing at 99 Portland Street in downtown Dartmouth and host of This Time Last Year. Episode 3, from Ottawa with Money, features a conversation with Sean Frazier. You'll quickly learn all Sean's titles, but he is the Member of Parliament for Central Nova. Uh, Full disclosure here, Sean's also a client and has been a client of This Is Marketing since 2015. It's always been great to work with Sean, because there's a lot of shared values in terms of how we see the world and what's important, and uh, anytime I can help amplify his voice, I'm a, I'm a pretty happy camper. I do hope you enjoy this episode and this look back at this time last year.
1: And all of this is pre-COVID, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um... Look, this is a great question. I think it's helpful for me to to sort of frame what the world used to look like. To be honest, Um, so uh, my uh, maybe I'll uh, I'll I'll do what a sort of uh, typical week looks like in in Ottawa first. Um, Although I've got to say, you come out of uh, when you first get elected, you um, you sort of come out of a campaign mentality where it's go 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 every day, meet as people as many people as you can, uh, and make sure you understand what it is that that's on their mind, what it is they're hoping you can actually take to the job. Uh, so when you get to Ottawa for the first time, and there is a bit of a difference between your first election and your second election, um, after you're, the first time you get elected, um, you know very, very well what your community cares about. You have no idea how to get it done. Uh, so you're talking to anybody who will listen to you when you get to Ottawa. You're you're taken in by the surroundings. The, uh, the it, It's really a pretty magical thing when you first arrive on on Parliament Hill. Uh, but when you find your feet, there's um, a, a few different elements. So when the house is sitting, first of all, uh, there's a lot of travel involved uh, when you're working in Ottawa, but living in Nova Scotia. Uh, so Monday mornings, if I'm going to make the first flight uh, for my early appointments, I- I'm getting up at uh, half past three in the morning, um, heading to the airport, uh, hoping the car doesn't break down. I remember I used to have battery problems with the car I was driving at the time. And i um, uh, you would get to Ottawa, you'd meet some of your colleagues who were on the same flight, uh, and you settle in for your first uh, meetings at, at nine in the morning, you could get to the office pretty dependably if there was no delays with your flight. Um, the schedule in, in Ottawa is pretty demanding. Uh, so I kind of made up my my mind that if I was going to be pulled away from my family, I wasn't going to waste a minute in Ottawa. Um, So you're taking meetings with stakeholder organizations, if a constituent comes to Ottawa, you want to show them around, Uh, you'll have meetings with your caucus colleagues, uh, but a large part of your time is spent uh, in parliamentary committees or actually in the House of Commons itself. So every day, you're in the House certainly for question period, but there's debates on legislation and as a local MP, you want to make sure your perspective is on the record on whatever issue it might be. It could be rail transportation, it could be public health policy, you know, every day is different um the committees that i was assigned at the time was the transportation infrastructure and communities committee and the status of women committee uh two areas that i thought were very important at the time and i flagged them as priority opportunities uh to our, our party whip that i had interest in serving on those committees but well beyond my subject matter expertise i was a lawyer before i got into politics i didn't know that much about transportation and infrastructure policy uh, but i thought it was important for people at home i didn't know a lot about uh, the politics and policies of gender equity, but I thought it was an important thing to to engage with. Um, so you get there and you get to listen to literally like the leading experts uh, on a given issue uh, and gain a real education for several hours every week. Um, you, uh, in the evenings, there'd be a mix of um, uh, events for technical briefings. Uh, sometimes there'd be receptions held by, a national organization like the Canada Building Trades, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, whatever it might be, I, you're surrounded by people who want your attention. And in the early days, you think you got to go to everything. You think you got to go to everything. Uh, so uh, I, I realized it probably took me a year to figure out that you're actually in control of of who you meet with and and what you go to. You don't have to be in every room in Ottawa. Um, in fact, you realize uh, the more you do it. That time is the most valuable currency you have and how you spend it is, is going to dictate whether you're a success in, in uh, being a representative for your community. So the more time went on, the less I felt compelled to show up to a reception, uh, the more I felt, felt compelled to um, invite a colleague to um, grab a bite to eat or, or a drink just off Parliament Hill to discuss something they can actually help you with. Um, Some of my most effective uh, moments uh, as an MP has been over a coffee or a beer with a a minister or colleague uh, on a project like the remediation of Boat Harbour, the twinning of Highway 104, um, the construction of a new community college. Those things didn't come from attending stakeholder perceptions. They came from grabbing a colleague by the elbow saying, I need some attention. Uh, I got a project at home. Can you make time for me? Um, so that gives you a vibe of what Ottawa's like then either Thursday night or Friday night, depending on your sitting schedule, uh, you come back home uh, and uh, you get home at one in the morning or some ungodly hour, um, and then you've got a weekend uh, where you try to squeeze in a little bit of family time, but the demands while well, the house is sitting are huge on a weekend from your constituency. Um, if there's uh, a Canada Day event uh, in Muscadab at Harbour or Sherbrooke, you got to be there. Uh, if there's a um, uh, an announcement for a project that your government has funded, you got to be there. Uh, so when the house is sitting, even when you're home on the weekend, um, of the uh, the 48 hours you might have at home, um, 36 of them are spoken for before you get there, and uh, it, it really does put pressure on your uh, sort of personal time. So that gives you a snapshot of a week in Ottawa. But the the weeks uh, when the house is not sitting, when you're at home, are kind of like the weekends. Uh, you try to catch up on calls to constituents uh, that for with people that need help. you're meeting with um, the board of a local community center who wants to launch some improvements to make their building more accessible or or uh, uh, more modern uh, to host different kinds of events. Uh, You're meeting with university officials at St. of about a project they're trying to get off the ground. Uh, You're attending a 100th birthday of a constituent who would love to have a local uh, MP show up with a certificate acknowledging uh, uh, their mother or father's 100th birthday. Um, There's no shortage of things to do, and there's no shortage of people who could quite rightly use your attention. Uh, so it's go, go, go. You're on the phone a lot, you're in meetings a lot, and you're doing your best to find time for, uh, for family in the middle of all this. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty demanding schedule and it's, um, I, I think it may be invisible to a, a lot of people, but that hopefully gives you a flavor of what, uh, what life was like before COVID for an MP.
0: But Sean's not just an MP. No offense to people who are just MPs, but when you're a parliamentary secretary, it means you have different responsibilities. Uh, It's important to understand those responsibilities so you can sort of get your head around why it made sense to talk to Sean um, because he really had a a fascinating perspective on what was happening in the weeks leading up to the pandemic. He had just been named the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Finance and Middle Class Prosperity. I asked him to sort of explain in detail what the parliamentary secretary role is and how it works and his role in it um, to set the stage for really understanding his perspective this time last year.
1: Sure. Um, So a parliamentary secretary, uh, the Coles Notes version is is, uh, every minister has an MP uh, um, within the governing party uh, assigned to assist them in in parliament. Uh, That's the sort of short, short description. So what that actually looks like day to day Um, It'll depend a little bit on the the minister that you work with, but you take questions and question period for the government on that portfolio. Um, You're responsible uh, to help um, facilitate the work of the uh, committee that's tied to the given portfolio. Uh, You might represent the government at events across the country and not just in your own community. Uh, And you might actually take charge of the conduct of a given file. So I I know I was sort of colloquially uh, referred to for a few months as the Minister of Caribou when I was working on the environment portfolio. And I spent an awful lot of time working on conservation initiatives in uh, British Columbia for the Southern Mountain Caribou, for example. So you do take on these additional responsibilities. uh, So you're not just the MP for your area. uh, You're helping um, administer the work of the Government of Canada on a very particular portfolio. Um, you'll often find yourself um, doing uh, television panels on national media outlets if the issue of the day in Ottawa happens to be uh, in the area that you've been assigned. So uh, when I was appointed to finance committee, um, anything that touched on the uh, the state of the economy for Canada, the uh, the jobs numbers for Canada, unemployment rates, um big spending decisions uh, i was uh, just in advance of this pandemic uh, was helping lead the uh, pre-budget consultations uh, in advance of what was supposed to be budget 2020 which of course that uh, didn't happen uh, so i was uh, hosting uh, some virtual events actually before the pandemic across canada but primarily in person um to to provide an atlantic canadian perspective to the then minister of finance in advance of uh, budget 2020 um, so those are the kinds of things that you take on as, as a parliamentary secretary, and it, it does change your position within Ottawa as well. So you may have less committee responsibility, uh, but you better know your stuff in question period or when the media corners you in the hallway. Uh, because if, if a reporter has a question about caribou conservation or small modular reactors, they'll just grab you in the hallway and say, hey, you're the person who's supposed to know this. And if the comment you give them is, I don't know much about that. Uh, you're gonna look silly uh so you really got yeah, the government's gonna look silly yeah, that, that's right uh so you really do have to dig in and know an entire file uh within uh within the responsibility of the, the federal government uh, because you'll be handed responsibilities asked questions uh and um and, and you do realize when you take on a role like that um that the government is is not some abstract organization that operates independent of people it's it's made up of ordinary human beings who are trying their best to do good work Um, now you have the benefit of the public service uh, subject matter experts but on the political side it's it's the the house of commons not the house of experts Uh, these are people who um, live in your communities and I get a kick out of it because uh, some people around town uh, who may not know you kind of think you're part of this big fancy organization but uh, I'm just somebody who grew up in Pictor County who's trying to make the most of the opportunity I've been given
0: well, it is about people and in the, the parliamentary secretary role, uh, you now in, in that space have all kinds of access to the people in the minister's office, to the senior officials, um, which, you know, in, in the abstract is like, okay, that makes sense. <clears throat> uh, but, uh, beginning in, in middle, in the middle of December and of the, the two months ahead, two, two and a half months ahead, you're beginning to form relationships with key people in the, the minister of finances office, mm-hmm. uh, uh, can you give us a sense of of uh, how looped in you are to what's happening strategically in that office and what the plans are? Um, the reason I'm asking is, you know, up until <laughs> March, you're planning for the next year, you're planning the budget and all those sorts of things, and you're getting to you're forming new relationships with people who those relationships are about to become incredibly important. So, you can you give us a sense of what it was like to get to know some of these folks early?
1: Yeah, and I think there's um, a divide between the public service and the minister staff. So there's political staff and then there's the the public service who remains in their jobs under a liberal or conservative government. Elections don't change, Uh, the the staff with the public service, but they very much do uh, on the political side of things. And I know just a a quick aside, I, I remember when you're first getting up to speed, it's not just the people but the subject matter too, uh, I know my my wife made fun of me because shortly after I was first appointed to this position, they sent me home with a binder that says how finance works, <laughs> and she said, "My God, we're in trouble." Uh, and the and the binder was uh, was uh, God, it must have been about ten inches thick, and there was three of them. Um, so uh, I remember I, I sat, I went up to Ottawa uh, before it was the house wasn't sitting, but I had a series of briefings scheduled, uh, and for. I got 14 hours straight you're sitting across the table from people who really know their stuff being, here's where we are on um, major policies impacting the financial sector. Uh, we're gonna have a socioeconomic policy session and you can ask whatever questions you may have. Um, so you get to know these people uh, on the public service side because you're you're gonna need to reach out to them, get their advice on things, get their perspective. Uh, on the political side, uh, relationships are, are so important to, you, to your question. Um, so I had the opportunity to uh, have some say on, uh, on who uh, specifically would be paired up to work with me. There's usually a position called a parliamentary secretary's assistant and they'll take on some additional roles within the minister's office too. Uh, and I worked very closely uh, with, uh, with Emily, who, who you know, uh, who has been involved with my political career previously. Uh, and she was a godsend, uh, and she built her own relationships, which helped me. Uh, but I also had the opportunity to get to know some of the key people in in the minister's uh, office. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I, I find people may not adequately value in in, in life uh, and in in their careers, um, that the value of relationships is is immeasurable. Uh, if you can pick up the uh, Uh, the telephone um, because Tyler has become a friend of yours and Tyler happens to be somebody who's working on a file you need uh, to work on as well Um, it really makes life easier Uh, so I I was spending um, some of this time uh, getting to know people trying to figure out what their expectations were of me saying look I, I don't need more work I got plenty to do but if I can help let me know where I can make a difference to actually help the government improve the lives of Canadians. It sounds cheesy to frame it that way, but that's sort of the mindset. And and part of getting in that position where you can work closely with the people who are making a difference is saying, "Hey, I'm I'm here. I've got uh, a set of hands that are are willing and able to contribute. Uh, so so use me. And uh, if you want to check in with me casually on things, uh, feel free. I can give you a flavor of what's going on at home and what." Uh, caucus members are talking about but if you want me to take on some formal role then let me know and that that's sort of where the um uh, my role in helping conduct the pre-budget consultations in 2020 came from Uh, again of course for the budget that that never happened
0: sean was about to be put to very good use Uh, his ability to take a complex position and simplify it and still explain it in a way that matters in your heart that's what makes him rare he's also funny uh he's funny. He uh, he understands timing, he understands the basics of comedy and he uses it. Um, this exchange between him and Pierre Polyev is a good example. To the conservatives listening, I'm not going to uh, it's just a quick cut, so this is a portion of it. <laughs> Go watch in November 2018 an exchange between Pierre Polyev and um, Fraser on the tax on a tax, what Pierre Polyev is referring to as the carbon tax.
1: Honourable Parliamentary Secretary, to the Minister of Environment. Speaker, let me begin by expressing my condolences to the Honourable Member from being left off the uh, cover of Maclean's magazine alongside his colleagues from yesterday. Uh, what the Honourable Member is trying to do with this question is trying to trick Canadians into believing that life will be made more expensive under our plan. That is simply not true, Mr. Speaker. We're moving forward with putting a price on pollution that's actually going to make life more affordable for Canadians. Mr. Speaker, that collection of miscellaneous conservative politicians labelled themselves the resistance on the cover of that magazine yesterday. From where I sit, all they seem to be resisting is progress on social and environmental issues.
0: So you're you're settling into your new role as parliamentary secretary. You're getting to know the the key staff in the minister's office. You're getting up to speed on all the files. You're learning how finance works. Uh, you know you're, you're you're well into January 2020, and you're sort of looking at budget consultations. Then we're going to do a budget. I'm in the minister's. I'm part of the minister of finances team. So when we roll out that budget, I have a an important public facing role to play, and all this uh, near the end of January. Um, uh, Peter McKay, former uh, MLF, sorry, former MP for Central Nova, your riding, um, your predecessor, uh, announces he's going to. And that's why I'm standing here today, again,
1: to announce my candidacy for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada.
0: What did you expect 2020 to be at that point? If we had had this conversation uh, in January 2020, what was the what was the year ahead in your mind?
1: Uh, it was an exciting year in politics. Uh, I, I was really looking forward to, uh, but both on the, the policy advancement side and, and the the straight old-fashioned politics side of things. Uh, so on the policy side, we were coming out of an election uh, where some of the issues that I care most about and, and frankly that motivated me to get into politics in the first place had really come to the fore. Um, it, you, you'll recall that the 2019 federal election, uh, climate change was a very big deal. Um, I've been involved in in, uh, environmental advocacy literally since I was seven years old, Um, maybe in a less serious role than I I am these days, Uh, but um, uh, this is something I always cared about. Uh, We were coming up into a position where we were going to have to make some uh, really serious uh, decisions about the path forwards for social and economic policy. Uh, sort of uh, the, the responsible management of the economy uh, was really at the fore for a lot of people at the time. Uh, but there were some big systemic issues we needed to to tackle around public health, around climate change, uh, around uh, who the economy is actually working for. Um, wh- whether we're looking at a macro level, uh, are we trying to grow GDP or are we trying to deliver a higher quality of life for, for the people who live in our communities? Um, these are big, exciting issues you get to work on. And uh, and it was really engaging for me because it wasn't just in the policy development piece. Um, when you take on a role as the parliamentary secretary, I, one of the reasons the prime minister asked me to serve in this particular role uh, was because they, they wanted me to be, um, uh, engaged in the communication of some of these big, uh, ideas. They wanted me to be in question period, uh, defending the government's economic record. I, I, I quite enjoy, I'm not a particularly partisan guy in my day-to-day life, but I love debating, um, policies with people who come from different partisan per- perspectives. Um, the, our system is designed to show the differences, uh, that different parties bring to the table on these things and to be asked, uh, uh, to sort of represent uh, the government's ar- arguments to advance social, economic, and environmental policy was something I was really engaged with. So d- to circle back to the the sort of motivation of the question, uh, which was more on the political side of things, this was going to be fun. Um, I uh, I thought we were going to have an opportunity to... Have a light shone on our um, constituency because uh, uh, Peter had announced his intention to run. By the way, I get along very well with Peter. I think he's a nice guy. I've got nothing negative to say about him as a person. Uh, lots of areas where I'm sure we disagree on policy, but that that's healthy. That's that's what politics is all about. Um, and to be able to showcase to people in a historically conservative riding um, that our future at home uh, could embrace climate policy, could embrace uh, investments in public health, could embrace economic decisions that were motivated by improving the quality of life for people rather than growing the economy writ large. Uh, These were things I was excited about and um, I I come from a position where I I absolutely love my job and I want to keep doing it for a while. Um, But I'm not afraid to lose an election. I have a career that I can go back to if I wanted to. Um, When uh, I I left a job that um, I really enjoyed and I'm sure I would enjoy doing it again someday uh, but for now, um, to get to engage on issues that I find are, are more important than, than, than anything I, I dealt with in my career before, um, I, I didn't want to miss this opportunity and I was excited to uh, ha, have a, not just a fight at home uh, that was exciting for folks, uh, but that I think people across Canada would probably pay, be paying attention to. So it was shaping up to be a real exciting year. Uh, it turned out to be a real exciting year for very different reasons.
0: Um, you get a lot on your plate, you're gearing up, you're doing budget consultations. That's where you're at. You know, that you're going to be asked to be the voice of government on the the decisions that get made and the budget that gets, um, brought to the house. That's your reality. And then somewhere in all of that, you hear about this thing called COVID-19 or COVID or coronavirus, uh, really super simple question to start. Uh, do, you, do you remember when you heard about it for the first time and uh, anything about that moment? Where were you and what were your initial thoughts?
1: Um, I don't remember the very first moment that, that I heard the word coronavirus. Uh, I remember um, around the, the beginning of the year. It, I mean, even back in December, you were starting to see snippets of it on CNN. There'd be some Canadian coverage about this um, mysterious illness that had uh, broken out in, uh, in Wuhan. And uh, it, it, the fact that it was getting media attention um, in North America, caused me to to think, Oh, God, this is, uh, this is a serious thing. Um, maybe not for Canada, but we should be paying attention to it. Um, as the virus started to, um, and, and we would have conversations with colleagues about it. Uh, and uh, as as the virus started to spread, Uh, Where it really started to sink in for me, there's two things that come to mind just in this conversation that really made me think, hey, this is a bigger deal than we've been talking about. Um, When we started to see uh, Western European countries really get hit hard, enter phases of lockdown, um, have just tragic numbers uh, of people who've been infected or, or killed with the virus that's when you start to say, okay, this is not some small thing. Initially, my thoughts were, hey, is this going to be kind of like SARS that we need to be prepared for, had serious consequences at home, but ultimately didn't change the way of life for everyone? Um, Are we going to be able to nip this one in the bud uh, uh, so it uh, prevents the worst consequences, which we've now seen? Um, But when I saw it creep into uh, some of our allied nations in, in Western Europe, um, Italy in particular just jumps out in my mind as, as one jurisdiction where this was getting serious. Uh, the other, where I I really thought, and this is uh, fast forward a couple of months, really from when I first heard of it. Um, when the NBA shut down, uh, I've been a basketball fan my whole life. Uh, so I, I kind of pay attention to what's going on. Uh, but it wasn't my affinity for the game that, uh, that had the seriousness sink in. Um, the NBA is an organization filled with franchises that make an awful lot of money. Uh, when they pulled the plug on their season, uh, I realized that um, the public health threat was big enough that these uh, this multi-billion dollar organization was shutting down. Mm-hmm. I thought, holy smokes, uh, we are in it now. Uh, and it wasn't long after that uh, parliament had shut down, we were sent home. Um, but at the beginning, uh, we were kind of oscillating between this this notion that, hey, this is something we got to kind of watch because it's on the other side of the world, infectious diseases can spread, and and, and this other mindset, which you could now or later be thinking, this is going to change the whole world. And we didn't know which it was going to be. Um, and very, very quickly, uh, we, we learned it, it was the latter.
0: So even in your role at that point,
1: so let's say late
0: February, it really wasn't oh, this is going to change the next several months or the next year. That's not where it was.
1: Uh, Late February, I was just kind of getting there myself. Um, But even then, um, like the official advice from the Public Health Agency of Canada, like mid to late February, the the risk to Canadians was low. That that was the leading health experts in Canada. That was their advice. Um, There was a few voices uh, saying, hey, this could be more serious. We might want to be... Uh, considering uh, investments to help provinces buy more ventilators in case this becomes a thing. Uh, But uh, I I have a a unique perspective because my job at the time was to conduct those pre-budget consultations for the finance minister. Uh, It wasn't to go figure out what Sean Fraser thought were the biggest issues and to write a letter to the minister, it was to ask people, what are the biggest issues facing you? Uh, when I, I reviewed in anticipation of, of sitting down with you, uh, what submission I, I gave to the team at finance, um, in late February, uh, nobody had raised COVID with me. Wow. Nobody. I, and I spoke with thousands of people. There, there wasn't anybody asking for funding that was specific to the public health emergency that was going to punish us weeks later. Um, it speaks volumes to me to go back now. And, and it wasn't that it wasn't in the uh, the mindset of the government of Canada. I've, I had spoken to the health minister by this time about, hey, is this a real thing? Is it a big deal? Um, and, and she was taking it seriously. She was every day meeting with uh, Dr. Tam, uh, meeting with uh, provincial officials about preparedness. Uh, but in the consultation process I was launching, Uh, to uh, consider what investments we were gonna make in the upcoming budget. Uh, It was on healthcare more broadly. It was on climate policy. It was on uh, extending benefits to different groups of people who um, were not impacted by COVID yet, uh, but still had serious financial need. It was about making investments that would grow the economy. Um, There literally wasn't a single submission. Uh, I had heard in, in writing or in person where somebody said, hey, we actually need to be making financial decisions that will help respond, uh, to this pandemic. Um, and that, that was mostly throughout the month of February. Um, but man, things change quick to the error.
0: So the end of February, you're submitting this report on your budget consultations to the f- finance team. That's the end of February by March 11th. <laughs> it's not a long time in government by March 11th, the federal government comes out with its first bit of, uh, investment. So it comes out They say, uh, aside from basic public health protocols, you invest, A billion dollars, the federal government says it's going to invest a billion dollars, 500 million of which is going to go directly to the the provinces to help with um, reaction and and preparations for the pandemic. Um, And at that point, uh, this is March 11th, you also say we're going to waive the one one week waiting period for employment insurance. That's what you do on March 11th. Um, In retrospect, that financial investment seems almost laughable. It seems like tiny, a billion dollars. Um, at the, So at the time, did was it understood that that was tiny at the time, or was it considered to be giant?
1: That was a serious investment at the time, um, a, a billion dollars. Let, let's put this in perspective. Um, the government of Canada spends every year somewhere in the ballpark of $350 billion, give or take. It tends to grow over time as the economy grows. Um, That doesn't sound like a lot, but we were in a conversation at the time about trying to manage a, um, uh, we we were trying to achieve a, a continuing downward trend on Canada's debt to GDP ratio. And one of the interesting things that you'll, if you actually go back and read the mandate letter of the Minister of Finance after the 2019 election, one of the things the Prime Minister specifically asked the Finance Minister to make sure of, was that we responsibly manage the fiscal position of Canada so we can maintain the um, the language is something like the, the economic firepower uh, should the need to respond to an emergency arises. Um, it, th- those words are, are I- I've read them over a couple of times over the past year thinking, uh, thank goodness, uh, because for the last five years um, by and large we have seen a downward trend to Canada's debt to GDP ratio, which essentially means the cost of our, our our debt is is going down compared to the size of our economy over time. Um, every every dollar mattered. I know so, some of our political uh, opponents would accuse of, uh, uh, accuse us of having spent too much, but finding a billion dollars for something new was a big deal. Um, before this pandemic, um, we were looking at the initial response, saying, "Hey, let's get the provinces ready." uh, let's reduce the waiting period. I think there was uh, part of that $500 million if memory serves was to go to improve, um, the EI work share program as well. So if, if employers were affected, they could maybe split a job up between different workers rather than laying somebody off. Um, and a billion dollars at the time was, you know what, this is serious. It did, it, it wasn't necessarily, this is all we're going to do. Uh, but that was the plan for step. Uh, and at that point in time, we were, I think the budget was initially scheduled for March 19th, but got delayed till March 30th. I'm going from memory here, but around that, and, um, uh, and very quickly, within literally days, the the scale of the threat started to reveal itself, and um, a, a billion dollars now seems like nothing. but But at the time, that was a serious amount of money, and it changed the conversation with a lot of our colleagues to say holy smokes, we're spending a billion dollars on this. Like everybody who submitted a budget ask is looking for 10 million for this, 25 million for that. And when you announce you're spending a billion dollars on something, that's a serious uh, issue. The government of Canada is now paying attention to in normal times. Um, So it it was, it was a big deal that we were spending that kind of money on it at the time. Yeah. So from not even
0: on your radar to 11 days later, a billion dollars and that's a lot. (laughs) So, Uh, That's the 11th. We moved to the 13th. Friday the 13th, fitting. Um, The the country finds out that the Prime Minister's wife uh, has COVID. The Prime Minister of Canada is the first leader in the G7 to be self-isolating in his own home. Um, And you get the heck out of Ottawa. (laughs) So this is your last day in Ottawa, March 13th. Um, First question, did you know that that was going to be your last day in Ottawa for... A very very long time.
1: Uh, no, um, I wondered uh, if if it would, and I remember having conversations with with colleagues. I know somebody jokingly uh, said, "Hey, look, uh, five bucks. Let's let's pick dates on uh, on when we're going to be back here." And, and a lot of people would say, "Look, uh, I think we're gone for two months. I think we're gone until June." Um, no, nobody was predicting uh, years. Um, I wondered a bit at the time because uh, I, I did a, I tried to do a little bit of reading um, around this period of time, and I couldn't determine for myself whether this was going to be more like SARS, like I mentioned, or or more like the uh, Spanish flu. Uh, but I remember reading about Spanish flu at the time, uh, and that that was a multi-year event, uh, and the economic consequences depending on which city you were in in the United States uh, where I I checked into some of the data uh, were five six years bouncing back from the um, uh, the public health uh, the consequences of the public health um, situation Uh, and there was a part of me at the time that was wondering is this a is this a depression uh, that we're heading into is this a Spanish flu um, uh, type pandemic or is this a few weeks and we need to be really really cautious uh and um there was just so much uncertainty at the time so in my own mind uh, i thought a delayed return of months and months was possible i didn't necessarily think it was the most likely outcome
0: so you board your plane <laughs> you get on there uh, uh you find the seat that fits you you're a big fella you're sitting there you get sit down you get situated and uh, you're waiting for the plane to take off close your eyes and you're sort of thinking about What's to come? What's the week, next couple of weeks ahead going to look like? What were you envisioning it was going to be?
1: So I I can do you one better. Uh, I can tell you what people were saying in the lineup waiting to board Um, because there were some of my colleagues there. I remember uh, Senator Deacon um, from Nova Scotia was uh, waiting to board. He was one or two people behind me. Um Some people were wearing masks. Um, they we were delayed to board, so the crew could spray and wipe down every seat and every tray on the plane. It' was the first time I saw anything like that. Um, the lineup on the uh, the 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 jetty coming out to um, to board the plane uh, had people lining up like you normally would for a flight. And some people near the front of the lineup were kind of saying, Hey, can we space out a little bit more? Can can you get people to back up? Um, people were scared. Um, people were scared to be on that aircraft. Um, they they worried that if somebody had COVID uh, because they'd been traveling and were on the same flight that everybody on the plane was going to get it. And we didn't know what the consequences for a person could be. Uh, and everybody was fearing, not everybody, a lot of people you could tell were fearing the worst. Um, so I get on the plane. Uh, I didn't have a particular fear myself about getting COVID on the plane. There weren't that many cases in Canada at the time, but it was starting to arrive. Um, it was a group of people who were mostly going to and from Nova Scotia, which had even less cases than than uh, the rest of the world. Um, but when I was on the plane, I was thinking to myself, okay, it's gonna be weird to work from home, um, but I'll make it work. Um, it's, uh, it's gonna be a challenge, but um, uh, we'll, we'll figure this out and eventually we'll get back to normal. But in the meantime, uh, my, my focus was not on what life was gonna be like in terms of my to and from. I was realizing uh, fr- from the responses I was seeing in that airway uh, or uh, airport lineup uh, and the people I was chatting with on the phone um, at home and, and across Canada, um, by this point in time, um, the the issues people were talking about in the budget were were an afterthought. Uh, in I should say in advance of that budget, the the consultation process I had I had been helping run. Um, people were starting to call me uh, saying, "Hey, is this going to be a two week vacation for everybody, or or are you going to need to start paying my mortgage as the federal government um, businesses?" I was starting to get calls from saying uh, are we, are you guys going to shut us down? Um, are, like, how am I going to feed my kids? Like those calls were starting to come in right around this time. Um, and, and it was days later, I was in touch with the finance minister's office again, uh, saying, forget everything I told you about what we need to have in the budget. Uh, this is a one issue, uh, uh government we need to be right now. Uh, because if we mess up this issue, nothing else is going to matter so you're several days you know
0: maybe three or four or five days removed from the billion dollar announcement uh which at the time was big but almost within an hour later seemed not big enough i would imagine um you get into to the next week uh we'll fast forward to the sixteenth um you know you're you're very much involved in the the federal financial perspective but on the sixteenth you're super local you're uh you're you're an m p who has constituency offices and constituency staff you're essentially the manager or the owner of a small business. And you got to make some of your own choices. So you shut your offices down. So the constituency offices go completely online. Um, First time you've ever done that as as an organization. Um, Can you give us a sense at that constituency level, like uh, not only did they adapt and you adapted with them to provide constituency services locally, but what were they hearing and what was, the change in their experience, and them being your staff, what was the change in their experience in terms of call volume, tone of calls, that sort of thing versus pre-pandemic?
1: So a couple of things. Uh, First on the the office shutting down, Um, some people made fun of us at the time uh, when we shut our office down. Um, I, I had a heightened sense of the threat because in other parts of Canada, they were starting to see uh, risks more clearly than we were in the Atlantic region and in Nova Scotia in particular, um, just because of the geographic spread, not because they had some special insight. Um, uh, there was people in the community who thought it was ridiculous, uh, that we, not many, a minority, uh, but we got messages from people, uh, saying that this, uh, you, you can't be shutting down, we're going to need you. And we never shut down. We closed the physical space and started arranging to have people work from home. Um, in some ways i'm very thankful we did both from a public health point of view but also from a productivity point of view because the normal experience in constituency office god bless every person who works in a constituency office in canada regardless of which party they work for these are people who do the lord's work uh, they are helping vulnerable people access government programs they are advocating for them for access to this thing or that thing uh, and it's it's really incredible uh, the work that they do um the volume exploded very quickly, maybe not the day we closed, but that that week um, before the benefits really rolled out when people started to realize the severity of it. um, We were getting uh, hundreds of uh, messages a day, Um, but they weren't messages from... we, We might get hundreds of messages in an ordinary day if they're from... Part, part of an email campaign from a national organization that wants to see action on uh, on protecting nature or uh, they want to see um, uh, the labor rights advance in a piece of legislation. You, you pick an issue. Um, uh, There's sometimes letter writing campaigns that come from all over Canada that bombard MPs' offices. And uh, the, the, both the quantity and the the character of the correspondence shifted dramatically. Uh, so we were getting like, I, I don't know, four or five hundred uh, messages to the office today, but they were from constituents who were scared, who were in need, who didn't know if they were going to lose their job, who didn't know if they could pay their mortgage. And uh, one of the reasons I say thank thank God we shut down the office in a constituency office, you get some people who come in who like to chat politics, and we love having those people come in. and And it, it kills me that we haven't had that service being offered through this pandemic. Uh, but sometimes when somebody's at your the desk of your staff and and chatting for 20, 30 minutes because it's a bit of a slow day, the phone's not ringing. Um, with that time freed up, and our team all working remotely from home, uh, they were really able to do incredible work. And and look, to my staff who might be listening, thank you. Uh, You don't realize how many hundreds, thousands of people locally that you have, um, you've really helped out and and their work is invisible to the public. My name gets in the newspaper when something good or bad happens. Um, The good work that my team does goes uh, unappreciated by the general public. And uh, they were, um, they were bombarded and they responded like professionals. Uh, They exceeded every reasonable expectation uh, that I had that the public should have of them. And they they kept families in in homes. They they helped get people back to Canada. They uh, helped um, communicate decisions that uh, the government had made. Eventually, when programs rolled out, they started helping access them. Uh, but I was getting bombarded personally too. I I, uh, I know I've shared with you. Um, there was one of these days when I was getting messages because it wasn't just locally that I was engaged. Of course. Yeah. Um, the uh, given my role on the finance portfolio i became one of the there was a few different touch points for people to inform the work of the ministry of finance i was one of them um so mps from different parties from across canada were calling me directly national associations of this or that were calling me directly um my colleagues uh, in caucus were were reaching out to me saying hey here's my ideas um i hope you consider them um, and I'm thinking to myself, holy smokes, I got to put together my own submission here based on what I'm hearing, kind of like I did for the pre-budget process. Um, but the engagement with MPs offices right across Canada was one of the most effective public consultations I've ever seen the government run. And we didn't even mean to run it. It happened organically. Um, business owners and constituents from across Canada were calling their member of parliament in a panic, uh, saying like, my sister's trapped overseas. Um, my, my business is shutting down to protect the public. I have no money to pay my landlord or my staff. I have to lay them off. Are you going to take care of them? Um, workers were saying, I, I think I'm going to be laid off and I can't buy groceries. And I don't even know if groceries are going to be on the shelf. Um, the, the issues that we were hearing in our community were almost to a person identical to the issues that were coming up with MPs that I spoke to across Canada. Uh, that really helped draw a box around, f- for me, what, what the government needed to do to prevent the worst consequences, uh, social and economic consequences of COVID-19, let alone the very real public health threat that are represented. Um, a bit of a long-winded answer, but uh, you sort of triggered a train of thought that I, I think is, is worth sharing. You're talking about a point in time, at the
0: calendar this time last year where uh, there, it's, it's, everyone's living in an uncertain world. There is no clarity about what government's gonna really be able to do. Um, the, 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 the toilet paper is flying off the shelves. And when I say that, anyone who was paying attention knows what I mean by that. Grocery stores were insane and have remained so. You happen to be the member of parliament as well for Central Nova. And uh, Pictou County, in particular, which is home to one of the nation's largest grocery chains, uh, did you have? Was that was there enough bandwidth to even be talking to the the the, the grocery world, the Sobeys world, to get a sense of what they were seeing? Uh, uh, they went from being a, a grocery company to a, an essential service, kind of overnight. Was there any sort of um, uh, talking there, collaboration?
1: Um yeah, uh, although I forget which specific conversations I had and and look you i, I hope you'll forgive me uh, because um uh l- literally um thousands upon thousands of conversations in the in this few week period i th- I think um I, I did review one of those days uh the total number of people who'd reached out to me personally. forget the hundreds of messages that came into my office that day. I remember there was one particular day where i I had um long meetings phone calls texts emails um that were for me personally and I, I received 568 distinct messages that were for my personal attention that day um i i could i i'm still playing catch up uh for from uh last spring which uh, most of the ones from last spring have been returned now uh but it's created sort of a backlog in our system and, and i still uh, last i checked I, I owe a phone call to 108 constituents uh, that are looking for a personal response from me. Um, that that kills me, uh, to be honest. I, I've really taken a lot of pride in being responsive to people over the last number of years, and uh, keeping up with the volume has has become difficult. Uh, but on the issue of, of grocery stores, uh, the toilet paper thing seemed kind of silly to a lot of people at the time. And I remember you saw some uh, jerk trying to sell Lysol wipes for 1800 bucks on Amazon. Um, but the thing that worried me, um, one, I should say one of the things that worried me at the time was the strength of our supply chains. Uh, the the toilet paper thing, I I expected we would be able to find toilet paper. Uh, I I was watching bread. Uh, I was watching milk. Um, we can produce a lot of these things uh, within Canada, uh, but we don't produce enough food in Nova Scotia to sustain ourselves beyond three or four days, at any given point in time in Nova Scotia, uh, we have—I'll be within the right ballpark—but probably three to four days of fresh food. It's, um, the, it's the most food insecure province in Canada. It is. Um, the it's uh, the, the risk is um, further exacerbated, particularly when your your transportation links shut down. Uh, and uh, most of our, our our transport comes in on a single highway from New Brunswick and a single rail line from New Brunswick, um, which, by the way, faces its own threat as a result of climate change, that railway in particular. It's an issue for another day, uh, but uh, uh, the only thing that sort of separates, uh, th- there's a small bed of gravel between the rail line and the ocean, and if that goes out, $50 million a trade a day is shut down, including uh, some of our our um, key supply chains in in the the food sector um there's a, there's a couple of retired mps that are very happy that you just uh reiterated yeah yeah look that uh, shout out to bill casey who's been working on that particular issue for years um but but there there was a, a few days um where my head was in a space where i i, I was worried my my um uh, my wife kind of said to me are things going to be okay and i said look I'm not sure. Why do you ask? And she said, you don't worry about anything, but you look worried now. And and that worries me. Um, Well, you had read the how finance works binder. (laughs) To be clear, I had an inclination on how finance worked, but uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the label they stuck on the binder didn't exactly lend uh, an air of credibility to me walking around with that thing. Um, But um, the, the reality uh, for me at the time was, I didn't think that this was likely, but but I was worried about the potential that um, our supply chains close, customers can't go to businesses, uh, businesses can't stay open for public health reasons, and I didn't know if if Main Streets would have any businesses on them. I didn't know if grocery stores would actually have enough food for people to eat. Um, I I thought they would, uh, but there was a small part of me that was saying the consequences of a failure in our supply chains would be so severe uh, that you need to think about it. Um, w- one of the things that uh, just sticks with me, um, it was a story at the time, but it it, it people have, it's sort of faded from the public memory now. Um, when businesses were shutting down, uh, truck stops became a very big deal. Um, truckers needed places to eat and to fuel, uh, to fuel up. Um, and if they were carrying our food to grocery stores, we had to make sure that every link in the supply chain, in, including where they're going to get food, uh, where they're going to get fuel, uh, is able to remain open enough that the rest of us can eat. Um, so it did seem like the toilet paper hoarding was an overreaction. Uh, but uh, bread and produce, I, I just I, when I went to the grocery store myself, uh, once every week or two, depending on, on what my needs were, um, I, I was checking at the shelves. And, and when, uh, when I saw the, the shelves restocked, uh, for the first time in the middle of this, I thought to myself, we're probably going to be okay. Uh, it's going to be hard, but we're, we're probably going to be okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So we move from, you know, the, the 16th, 17th, you shut the office down, but you're, you're taking hundreds, hundreds of phone calls a day. You're you're doing what you do and the government's getting ready to, um, make its first major announcement post the billion dollar announcement from March 11th. So we fast forward to March 18th, it's basically a week later. Uh, It's a week after, um, the government has come up with their billion dollar announcement and the government says we're going to invest $27 billion in new supports. Quick rundown of the supports: You announced the emergency care benefit, the emergency support benefit, 5.5 billion into an advanced GST credit, where you basically doubled everyone's GST contribution uh, that they received. Uh, you announced that student loan payments were going to be paused for six months. You funded, uh, you found money for shelters, uh, 305 million to an indig- in a, a Indigenous community support fund. Um, offered an opportunity for deferral of mortgage payments for up to six months. Uh, 55, uh, 55 billion in immediate support for Canadian businesses. Um, including a bunch of things, including changing the tax filing deadline, uh, and a, and a variety of other pieces, $10 million in loans for businesses of all sizes through the, uh, business credibility, uh, sort of business credit availability program. And the list goes on. You did a whole bunch of things here, uh, increased liquidity, liquidity for lenders in the Canadian economy, $50 billion in mortgage purchases. Um, allowing banks to free up additional lending capacity. You reduce the interest rate. This is all on the 18th, a week after you did the big billion dollars, (laughs) seven days. So you were taking some phone calls over those seven days. Uh, And there's more, there's uh, changes to the firm credit capacity and a bunch of things. Um, The question uh, where my head goes is, um, at this point, are you beginning to fully get your head around it or is it still very reactionary? And, and if you sort of interrupt, but you know, was it, were you feeling okay, we got, we're getting a handle on this, or was it like, Oh my goodness. And can you give us a sense of, uh, you know, all those things I just described could take years normally to bring to fruition. And it was done in seven days. How does that happen?
1: So, um, this is a, one of the most interesting uh, moments in time in my career. I, I hope it remains one of the most interesting in my career because I, I don't want to have to deal with this kind of a challenge again. Um, when we made that first announcement about the billion dollars uh, to help the provincial healthcare systems and, and boost EI essentially, by the time we made the announcement, there was already an appreciation internally that there would need to be more there's a lag period between when a government makes a decision and when a government announces that decision. In this case, it was only a matter of days, but but those days taught us an awful lot. So by the time we had made the initial announcement on uh, EI and and public health transfers and the the amount of uh, a billion dollars, I was already well aware we were gonna have to do more. There was a part of me that was beginning to think the volume of calls I'm hearing about are gonna overwhelm the EI system. Uh, and we started thinking immediately after that initial announcement was made, based on the calls we were all fielding. Uh, and I, when I say we, I'm talking about the the team at at finance. Um, and, and frankly, the my my colleagues who represent communities across Canada as well. Th- this was a, a, a huge effort, and it it's it turned out to be more organized than than I think people appreciate. but it was because everybody was kind of feeding in centrally and people parked the. Uh, partisan point scoring uh, that you usually see define uh, politics, people really, really want it to help their communities. Um, and they were giving very similar pieces of feedback. So what the challenge was for us, was to design uh, programs that could get money to people in need as quickly as possible. And and we, one of the things that I think is really important for the public to realize is, There is not a a big red button in the finance minister's office that says, send money now, and you push it and people get it. To develop these programs in ordinary circumstances, as you pointed out, it takes years. Um, It can take a a nationwide public consultation uh, that's going to identify how you can perfectly target a program, uh, how you can get money to people in need, how you're going to pay for it. Um, We realized early on um, that... Speed was the key ingredient to success. Uh, Done was better than perfect uh, because we didn't have time for perfect. Uh, And and thankfully we remained open to shifting some of these programs after announcements were made so we could improve them because we knew we were gonna make missteps just out of the, the necessity of doing things quickly um and the public was was very forgiving i think uh because they saw us trying to iterate uh, and adjust um a, as the circumstances demanded but when we were focused on speed uh, one of the things you'll realize with one or two exceptions in the list of programs you you um you mentioned there's a lot of existing mechanisms that were at play uh because there's not a big red button that says send money now Uh, We were looking at the EI system originally because that already existed. We were looking at boosting the Canada Child Benefit because that's a regular payment that we can adjust quite simply. Um, We were looking at uh, GST rebates because those checks already go out and are fairly well targeted to people who are from lower income backgrounds. Um, We were uh, working with the, uh, and some of the programs you mentioned, to be clear, were through organizations organizations that are tied to the government but aren't the government themselves so um the office of the superintendent for financial institutions worked with the banking sector to um, allow them to loan more money to canadians than they usually are permitted to the bank of canada adjusted its overnight interest rate to bring it down to make money more accessible Um, the government-backed loans like uh, the bcap program you mentioned was um, uh, being run through crown corporations So we were of of sort of had a um, bifurcated approach, get a whole bunch of money into the economy as quickly as we can, and then use existing mechanisms to get as much money as possible to the people that we thought needed it. Um, It turned out uh, that that announcement was a a big one. You mentioned the emergency um, support benefit, I think it was called that that's Uh, That That's where it came from. We didn't announce the details of it. We just announced there's going to be something uh, and, and that peace of mind went a long way for people at home. Um, that announcement, uh, and people forget that CERB wasn't the initial name of it. They forget that we tried to do EI first. Um, we realized the EI system was going to, it It does not have the the technical capacity in, internal to the government's IT systems. We could not process the volume through the EI of, of of claims that we anticipated through EI. So we pivoted quickly and we said to people, We're working on something right now, it's gonna be called the emergency support benefit before we shifted the name. Um, And we're going to make sure that if you've lost income, there's something coming. That allowed people to say, okay, uh, I'm gonna call my bank. I took uh, a lot of phone calls from people who didn't know what to do about their mortgage payments. I said, call your bank, call them today. Um, We're gonna have something, I can't tell you what it is because we're working out the details, but we're gonna have something to help offset lost income. Uh, and that was the first time I think those calls um, that I was taking from people, I, I, I wasn't just taking information. I was giving them a little bit of comfort that, hey, we're going to be there for you. Um, the conversations I was having with uh, folks uh, internal to government uh, were really motivated by the, the need. Th- there was an appreciation of how bad people were going to be hurting. The mindset at the time was, there's going to be a massive cost to these programs we're launching but the cost of inaction is so much greater Uh, it'll be paid for by um, an insufficient number of beds and hospitals it'll be paid for by people losing loved ones it'll be paid uh, for by uh, anchor businesses and communities closing it'll be paid for uh, through foreclosures and we made a decision at the time that because the pandemic created this cost, this immense cost, uh, it was not a decision of the government to um, incur the cost or not. It was a decision of the government to decide whether the government of Canada should incur the cost or whether we should let provinces, municipalities, or businesses, or households incur that cost. Uh, We benefited from a really strong fiscal position, literally the, the best fiscal position in of any G7 economy coming into this pandemic. We were at our lowest unemployment rate of all time, and we were dealing with interest rates that the government could access um, that were at historic lows. Today, they're at the lowest they've been in a hundred years. Um, we made the decision that the government of Canada could reduce the overall cost to the economy if we were the ones who advanced these programs and supports, uh, because the long-term cost of a business closing down was going to be far greater than the short-term cost of having the government pay to keep them open. Um, So that was the mindset at the time. The only trick was developing programs that could reach people quickly enough so they didn't miss payments, so they, they could afford groceries, so they could keep a roof over their heads. And this announcement didn't even include most of the business supports we were dealing with. It largely was just the supports for, for people. There was some credit made available to businesses, um, but uh, our announcement for businesses was probably a a week or so after this announcement. Yeah. Yeah. So uh,
0: on the 18th, one of the things that also gets announced is the uh, 10% wage subsidy. And that is the piece that, you know, there are, uh, you know, I, I come from the business world. That's, I own a, a small marketing company, and I'm talking to all sorts of small business owners myself. And um, that that March 18th announcement was well-received, except for this, this ridiculous 10% wage subsidy that everyone, that was the consensus. And I wonder, how quickly was the toothpaste out of the tube on that one before you realized, oh, that's not going to work?
1: Uh, It was pretty quick. (laughs) It was pretty quick. Um, So just to to put it into perspective uh, at the time, um, there was so much happening, so much happening. Um, If I can perk the economic benefits of the time, the other things that were on everybody's mind, like I was getting calls from constituents who were stranded in a remote village in Peru, who found a phone somehow and, and were panicked saying, I hear cases are coming in this part of the world. Like, are you guys gonna rescue me? Um, d- dozens of constituents were literally stranded on the other side of the world. And I, I've never been involved personally with a repatriation effort before. A- and you're trying to deal with people who are facing those kinds of need at the same time you're getting calls on uh, people who, who are worried about the cost of food when they lost their paycheck or paying to their, their rent. Uh, and businesses that are worried about um, uh, worried about closing. Um, the initial decision was to say, holy smokes, people are struggling, we need to support them. And the mindset in the first couple of days was along the lines of, well, look, if a business has to lay you off, um, we'll have something for you. Uh, so at the end of the day, the difference between the wage subsidy and, and what eventually became CERB for, for a couple of days, uh, at least in my own mind, they were almost serving the same purpose. It was always about the worker uh, and businesses uh, were gonna have a struggle, but not knowing what this was gonna look like. We had some faith that there'd be something for businesses. They might be able to access some of these credit programs to get them through what might be a tough period. Um, we realized very quickly as the public health threat continued to um, emerge uh, and, and really reveal it its, it's scale to us um, that there was going to be real value added if we didn't just focus on whether the worker has money but whether the worker can maintain an attachment to their employer um, when a worker is kept on the payroll uh, that avoids the loss of health benefits that are offered through a private uh, insurance plan It avoids the long-term cost to a business of having to find another worker and train another worker. Um, It allows the person to have peace of mind knowing that, hey, if I'm furloughed uh, rather than fired, uh, I'm actually going to have a job to go back to and I can uh, sort of conduct my affairs accordingly and not take on the stress of submitting applications to new employers at a time when nobody was hiring because everybody was shut down. So within days, and frankly, the rollout of international programs, I think it was Denmark at the time, had announced a 75% wage subsidy. Um, our program around CERB was actually likely going to be more generous, uh, but didn't maintain that attachment with uh, unless it was an employer tapped into the 10% subsidy. So what we did was um, advance it very quickly. Uh, I think the, the the decision was to do something bigger would have been days later. The announcement, I think, it was a week later, something like that, uh, along with a, a slew of other announcements for businesses. But the the first announcement was really people-focused. The, I, In retrospect, I almost wish we didn't have the wage subsidy in that first announcement right, and, yeah, and included I mean. that with the package for business, which came later. I know um, my, my initial submission to... Um, uh, to the team at finance. It, I, I felt radical at the time with some of the things I was proposing, which have become uh, commonplace now in, in the mindset of Canadians. Uh, uh, making suggestions on effectively um, paying everyone to stay home uh, with with CERB uh, was a big deal at the time. Talking about paying for the wages of workers all over Canada. Uh, talking about extending programs to support the cost of like literally paying utility bills, um, uh, rent. Um, talking about uh, uh, directly subsidizing these costs at at the time, it, it seemed unthinkable, and I, I almost felt sheepish raising them. Uh, I remember, in when I was typing up a message to um, the leadership team within finance, uh, do I lose credibility if I suggest that we need to make the banks? Pause mortgage payments for every Canadian who's who's lost work, and, and ultimately I, I included everything that I could think of. But I, I I had a gut check to say, is this so far out there that that I shouldn't say it because it will discredit everything else I'm asking for?
0: Yeah, Fraser's lost
1: his mind over there. Yeah, uh, but but you, you know what uh, I, I'm I'm really glad um, that I was taken seriously and that I didn't temper what I was hearing in my community. Because you you were living in Nova Scotia at the same time I was, when you went to the grocery store to Shoppers Drug Mart, uh, people were, were had rubbermaid gloves on their hands. They were wrapping scarves around their face because nobody owned masks. Uh, pe- people were. Uh, we were being, I think I did a Facebook post to tell people what social distancing meant. You did. Um, the, um, you posted a definition of it, like a screenshot of a definition of social distancing. Yeah. And, 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 at the time, like that public education was, was, was needed. Um, but, uh, when people, they were being told to stay six feet apart, but people were staying six meters apart. Uh, when I, when I was going out, which was rare at the time. Um, the 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 fear was real, and when I saw that fear in my communities, and when I took phone calls from people, I remember there's there's one constituent in particular, um, self-employed in the community, who initially thought, uh, "Hey, it's going to be two weeks. It's going to be kind of like the the summer of fun for people. Potentially, is it going to be two weeks? It's going to be two months." Um, the first call was kind of jovial in nature, and I was like, "Hey, this this is serious." um, we're coming up with some programs. And he said, I just want to make sure you guys are going to have something. Uh, I'm going to call him a bank. I'll take care of the mortgage payment for this month. Um, the next phone call two weeks later, um, are you guys going to save my business? Um, uh, I'm, am I going to lose my home? Um, like pure panic. Um, and it wears on you as a representative to hear so many people lived through this panic in your community these are your neighbors these are your friends and it's uh it was a a real tough mindset that people had at the time
0: well uh, you know you're you're talking to people you're hearing their mindset but I wonder did fear
1: at any point ever get the best of you uh no but it it in, it was a major uh, uh, inspiration um you know it's um it It was a uh, it was a real challenge at that time, and I, and I had some fear that the world had changed in a way that might be permanent. Um I still have some concerns I, and, and in fact, I see some opportunities uh, for some long-term positive change, but not not to suggest for a moment that this is a positive experience the world has gone through with so much suffering. Um, and and I, I think you got to remember at the time that we've talked today a, a lot about the um the economic plan and given my role Uh, but at the time everyone was worried for their lives um the public health threat was still at the top of every email i sent to anyone internal to finance the uh the first 10 things on my list were let's make sure hospitals have beds if we can work with the provinces to uh to help fund those initiatives Let's uh, halfway through March, I was already um, uh, speaking with my colleagues about the need to fund international research to develop a vaccine. Um, We were talking about developing uh, testing kits uh, in the first week of before these announcements were made. I I was talking with colleagues and stakeholders about the need for the public health response to really move fast. so there was there was a fear there, but um, I found myself in this bizarre position. Uh, the, the guy carrying the binder that says how finance works. Uh, I, I wasn't in charge of the response, but I felt like I was an important member of the team. And I thought to myself, um, if I don't respond effectively in this kind of a, a situation, I, I have no business in this job. Um, So every day um, from 7 in the morning to 1 in the morning um, was work, 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 work.
0: We all found new ways to work, work, work in 2020. Sean's was in his basement in a room that could charitably be called a office. While the viewer may see Sean Frazier in a space with local art on the wall and notebook-strewn table behind him, containing some future memoir, I'm sure. What he was seeing was a room full of workout equipment, dirty plates and books and wrinkled up shirts. This was clearly an office well, well used. It was really generous of Sean to open up his doors and uh, welcome us in.
1: my my fear was sort of in two buckets. The the immediate fear of people getting sick, of businesses closing, of people losing their homes, of people going hungry, and then the long-term fear. If we get over this first hurdle, which I think we did fairly effectively, particularly in Nova Scotia, uh, if we get over this first hurdle, uh, what's left of our communities so we still have a place to enjoy living uh, when this thing is over? Um, and I think we're, we're still, we're seeing now that some of those early decisions, particularly programs like the wage subsidy, um, without that program, a lot of the businesses that are still open today would be closed. Absolutely. And, uh, because of that program, when it's safe for everybody to have a proper reopening, when we're all vaccinated, when travel returns, um, we're actually going to have communities that are worth visiting, are fun to live in, that have things you can do. Um, And and, uh, if it wasn't for that mindset, which was not exclusive to me by any stretch, uh, but it was really coming from the conversations I had with people in my community, um, good employers in town, saying like, who were all concerned more for their workers than they were for themselves to, to a person Every business owner I spoke with, without exception, in my writing, every single business owner was more concerned about their workers than themselves. And and we saw the very best of people. And if I was hearing from them that my business is gonna close if you guys don't step up and my workers have nowhere else to go, um, that was an inspiration for me to say, well, look, if it means I've gotta suck it up and get some uh, programs out the door, with my team in Ottawa, although I was doing it virtually by the stage, um, then uh, th- this was sort of a—it was a bit of a test for for me in my own mind. I think to um, are you really up to a challenge when people have a need that you could never have envisioned? And and I'm proud of the work that I did. I'm proud of the work the government did, and I'm proud of the way we we parked partisanship completely um, mm-hmm. to to get things done for for people across Canada.
0: Sean, this episode is called From Ottawa with Money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you sent, uh, Ottawa said, here's a billion. And then Ottawa said, here's some more, 27 billion and uh, some other p- funds and whatnot. But March 26th and March 27th, 2020, the rubber hits the road. You, uh, you rise to the challenge as a government that you were just describing. Uh, March 26th, the CERB is officially announced a month for four months. That would then be extended uh, multiple times. But on that day, the prime minister announces $2,000 checks for those who have been impacted who have lost their job, have to stay home for caregiving purposes, and a variety of other factors. $2,000 a month for four months. The next day, uh, an announcement of a 75% wage subsidy for qualifying businesses for up to three months. That also would then be extended later on. the opportunity for the business community to defer GST and HST payments is announced on that day, on the 27th. The announcement of the Canadian Emergency Business Account. This is an account that saved a lot of businesses uh, ability to access $40,000 uh, of uh, debt, um, 10,000 of which would be forgiven if uh, the debt was repaid in full by the, the deadline. I believe I'm getting that correct. Um, uh, in addition to a variety of other programs, this is the, uh, the 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 rubber hitting the road. This is you fully uh, coming to the rescue. Um, there is uh, there are times in history that we look at and we say, well, that was before September 11th, or we say, well, that was uh, before the the Second World War. You know, there's there's before and afters. Uh, in this pandemic and this emergency response, there's. There's before the 26th and the 27th of March, and then there's after the 26th and 27th of March. Uh, what was the impact of Ottawa bringing the, bringing the money?
1: When these announcements rolled out and the programs opened, that is the that was a bigger deal to me than when I saw uh, food returning to the shelves in grocery stores. There's a couple sort of milestones in this process that led me to thinking, Some people will suffer through this, but society will be okay. The day that those announcements were made, and there was two sort of key announcement days, uh, and and both of them kind of, in my mind, uh, secured a a headspace for me that society will be okay. Uh, There will be some differences that we experience, there will be tragedies throughout this, but society will be okay. Um, and it sounds like hyperbole to frame it that way at the time, um, but the the calls I was getting shifted from, will there be support to how can I access it? Um, people were no longer worried whether they would survive this thing. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. The public health situation, that, that threat to people's lives um, remains today. Um, but at the time, uh, a lot of the people who were worried about their livelihoods finally had a sense of confidence that something's here, it's real. I've heard the words come out of the prime minister's mouth. Uh, my only question is how quick can it can it arrive? Um, businesses uh, were, were very grateful at, at the time to see that we had taken their feedback seriously. But one of the things that jumps out for me when I look back at some of those announcements, Um, one of the the sort of buckets of funding, I remember I had a couple conversations at the time on how can we quickly get money to people. And we had a few conversations about, well, the quickest way to get it to them might be not to take it from them in the first place. Uh, Can we delay the money that that they owe the government through delays to tax filing deadlines, to uh, not requiring remittance payments on... A certain payroll taxes. Um, can we just leave money in people's accounts? Uh, the it came a little bit later than than the measures you've in, uh, outlined, but the moratorium on student loan payments is another example. How can we it does very, very little good in this kind of an emergency to have the government have a, a slightly improved bottom line if that money's not reaching people in the economy? So, can we stop taking money from people for the time being? That, that was part of the mindset. Um, but on the other side, on, on new program expenditures, almost every program was designed to respond to a specific need. Uh, I was panicked about uh, the childcare situation uh, because the people who could work um, all of the sudden and disproportionately impacted women in, in the economy. Uh, all of a the sudden, they, they had a job they could go to, but because uh, they were, in, in, some men too, obviously, but disproportionately women, um, they couldn't go to it because they had no arrangements uh, when, when schools were shutting down, when their childcare closed. Uh, working with provincial governments to extend supports uh, for those very specific needs in, in the outset were, were super important. The Canada Emergency Business Account has been a, another lifesaver. Uh, but that came from directly from business owners calling people like me all over Canada uh, saying, okay, uh, you came up with a wage subsidy, but what about the lights? What about the internet? What about the phones? Um, later, what about my rent? Um, and the, these each one of these programs was really designed to respond to very real concerns uh, that that people had. Um, uh, serve obviously, for people who lost personal income. Um, but when I realized what was going on, I, I realized we we had the um, not just the, the wherewithal, but the technical abilities within our public service to roll these kinds of programs out in a hurry. And uh, a few days after um, these announcements were made, I remember I forget which which exact date CERB was made available to people. It was April sixth. OK, uh, but I, I remember. Um, we made the announcement. We better deliver. Um, the government doesn't necessarily, across Canada's history, have a, a perfect record of of uh, delivering benefits. Uh, a lot of people see lots of splashy announcements that governments make, but they don't necessarily necessarily feel it in their bank accounts. And um, making sure that the benefits of these policies landed on the kitchen tables of families. Uh, the moment that I really breathed easy for the first time in a long time, was the morning that CERB rolled out. Not that we announced it, but that people could fill out the online form. I mentioned earlier in this conversation that the initial plan was to come up with an EI reform. We realized real quick that wasn't going to work. We made the announcements that we've discussed over the past uh, hour here. Um, We had to create that button in the finance minister's office that says, send money now. Um, I was sincerely concerned about our ability to deliver the benefits we intended to deliver. Uh, I mean, you can look uh, at a long history of governments not coming through on the technical delivery of benefits that are effective and efficient. The online portal required a person to click four times and they would have direct deposit go into their account. The morning that CERB rolled out and in the week or so that followed, the brand new online system that had never been tested was processing more than a thousand claims per minute.
0: Wow, wow.
1: When I saw that the system did that and didn't shut down, I knew people could buy groceries. And and I went to bed a little earlier that night for the first time uh, in several weeks. Sean, thank you very much for all your
0: time. I appreciate you uh, taking us back to this window uh, of history and telling us about it from, you know, from your perspective. Um, thanks for all the work
1: and uh, good luck in the next election, whenever it comes. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Look, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to join you here today. And it's, it's really helped me sort of reflect just on my own experience. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: And thank you for listening to episode three of this time last year from Ottawa with money. Special thanks to Sean and his team for helping put this together. Uh, Also to uh, Stephanie and Danielle uh, and the talent at Vox management agency for giving us a hand. And of course my team here at this is marketing at 99 Portland street in downtown Dartmouth. You can follow us at brands by Tim on Instagram, or you can go to our website and sign up for our newsletter and, uh, uh, all sorts of other things you can do uh, to learn about our business. Uh, the next couple uh, of episodes will feature um, Matt Sims of Simplicity and Elizabeth McMillan of CBC Radio, uh, where we explore the events of Portapec here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, thank you again for listening, and uh, we'll talk again soon.